The federal government, as we all know, is enormous. And that means that federal government projects, IT projects, any kind of project, operate at a scale that few of us have any experience with. And today, on episode number 114 of CXO Talk, we are going to get a glimpse behind the curtain into federal government IT. I'm Michael Krigsman, and I am here with my friendly and fabulous co-host, Vala Offshore. Hey, Vala. Michael, how are you? It's great to be here. It's a privilege to have Mark Schwartz, the CIO of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, as our guest for episode 113. Mark, how are you? I'm doing great. Looking forward to this. Mark, so we got uh, the, I was going to say, go ahead, Vala. <laughs> you would think after 113 episodes, we'd have a more clean handoff. But, uh, yeah, and, and, and I'm not going to mention to people that you just suggested to Mark that uh, his agency find a way to deport me for a week so you have a good blog to write about. <laughs> so uh, I really appreciate that support, Vala. Yeah, I'm hoping my ethics people aren't listening here. La -la. Okay, we take that back. We take that back. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Mark, tell us uh, briefly about your professional background. Sure. I've, uh, I've been with the federal government now for all of five years, which is about how long it takes to figure out how to, how to do a procurement and hire a person. Uh, before that, I was CIO of a small, medium-sized company in the Bay Area. Before that, CEO of a small software company. I have a computer science degree from Yale University and a master's degree in philosophy, as I was telling you before, also from Yale and an MBA from Wharton. Uh, the philosophy degree is very important because it gives me the ability to argue with anybody about any subject. I'd like to see that with Michael during the show, but we'll, we'll go to the next question. <laughs> because Michael doesn't have a philosophy degree, but he loves to argue. <laughs> Somehow this is going down the wrong path. But Mark, uh, tell us about the agency and tell us, uh, give us a sense of the size and the scope and the mission and what you do. U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services is part of the Department of Homeland Security. It's one of three component agencies that deals with immigration in one form or another. We are the ones who do legal immigration to the United States, so we process applications from people and petitions from companies that are trying to uh, get people immigration benefits. We process about 7 million applications a year for one thing or another. We do applications for naturalization, applications for green cards, uh, refugee status, asylum, foreign adoptions, and uh, a whole range of other things like that. The other organizations that you've probably heard of, which are not us, are Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Those are the ones who would deport you if, in fact, you were deportable. And Customs and Border Protection, those are the, the people at the border and at the airports who check your passport and let people into the country or don't. I'm just going to I'm just going to officially say that I'm not deportable. Just <laughs> yeah, I'm really glad to hear it. <laughs> yeah, so I think I think we're good at, on on that account. But maybe tell us share with us uh, some of your major IT initiatives that that you're working on. Well, we have one very big one, which is is the one that gets the most attention. 
It's a project to turn all of our paper-based processes into electronic processes. We've been, uh, well, it's a very, very large effort because we are so paper-based at this, at this point. In fact, they say that if you stacked up all the paper that we receive each day, it would make a stack that is about 1.8 times the height of the Statue of Liberty. And that's our daily incoming paper. So our processes are very paper-based. Paper Applications come in that way. They get adjudicated that way. Eventually, it turns into a, a card or a piece of paper. What we want to do is work electronically, allow people to submit their applications online, uh, have them processed by our adjudicators electronically, uh, and cut down the movement of paper and provide better customer service and, and better national security. That's, that's our big, you know, monstrosity of a project. We also have smaller initiatives, though, that I think are really interesting, maybe, maybe even more interesting to me. One is an initiative to rethink all of our interactions with the public, whether it's in person or online, and make them, uh, make them more user-friendly or customer-friendly, uh, make them better at conveying information, and... Uh, think of them as, as parts of digital services, as parts of an end-to-end -end process that is facilitated digitally. So we call that effort MyUSCIS. And uh, a third one that I'll mention is, uh, I guess a, a lot of companies, a lot of other agencies have a, a similar problem perhaps, where you have a geographically dispersed workforce and a lot of things going on in a lot of locations. And you have under the radar people building rogue applications or, or doing little IT projects that the central IT group doesn't know about. So we've come up with, I think, a, a really unique way to, um, to both support the business needs behind those things and at the same time to make sure all of our applications are sustainable, secure, maintainable. Uh, and that has to do with creating a very rapid application development pipeline platform, small decentralized teams of developers who can work quickly, a decentralized governance process, and sort of a, a crowdsourcing approach where we harness the talents of everybody around the agency and do hackathon days and, and small, quick, quick win projects. So those are, those are the three I'd mention offhand. That's incredible. That's very innovative and inspiring, and, and exactly the the type of thinking and leadership that hopefully all CIOs are are, are adopting. And in one of your blogs, uh, Mark, is called Thoughtful IT, and your LinkedIn profile describes you as innovative. So, what do these descriptions imply? Thoughtfulness and innovation, in terms of your approach of being a successful CIO. Yeah, this is going to sound a little bit funny because uh, somebody who calls themselves innovative does not sound like the most humble person around. But I, I think of it as, as sort of a kind of humility. Um, I like to think that I don't have all the answers. And innovation to me has to do with figuring out what the right experiments are or what the right learning process is to solve problems. So, uh, you know, the uh, one of the patterns that you see a lot in the government is something 
is repeated many, many times, and it becomes set as the way of doing things. Uh, I'm sure it doesn't just happen in the government. Uh, and that leads to what, what I consider to be sort of a, a kind of pride. You know, we have our way of doing things, and this is the way, and we know all the answers. And by innovative, I mean the willingness to look at a business problem with fresh eyes, knowing that you don't know all the answers, and trying to do good experiments that you can learn from that will help you find a creative solution or a better solution than you've had before. Uh, I think also in terms of cross-pollination of ideas. I think it's good to be out all the time looking at new ideas, seeing what other people are doing, bringing experience from other disciplines, not just IT, uh, as idea starters, and uh, generating a nice pipeline of, of sort of things, things to try, new approaches, new ways to think about things. Uh, in order to, to really make that work as a CIO, what I found I need to do is create an environment where experiments are not only encouraged and tolerated, but where you reduce the risk and the cost of doing experiments. So, for example, one of our big initiatives has, has been moving to the public cloud. And if we move to the public, or as we move to the public cloud, we can stand up infrastructure at a very low cost and with very little delay, try and experiment, tear down the infrastructure immediately. So that reduces the cost and the, uh, the time frame involved in doing an experiment a lot, and it helps encourage, I think, innovation. So that's what I'm striving for. This is pretty interesting because as you're talking, these, these attributes we tend to associate with startups or at the very least with smaller companies especially inside the private sector so how do you how do you manage to uh, conduct this type of culture change in a sense within the context of this very large federal bureaucracy yeah I think um, I think of myself and I think of the rest of my management chain as servant leaders in the classic sort of agile sense so I have teams that I want to encourage to be innovative, um, take tiny little risks as experiments to learn from, and my job is to clear away all the impediments. And, and that's the way I like my uh, middle management people to think about it too. There are lots and lots of impediments. Most of them can be handled by somebody who has good experience in the government and knows how to work all the levers and talk to the right people and get the right support. And uh, I don't want the innovators, the, the experimenters, the creative people to have to worry about those things. I want them to focus on the, uh, the business problem and finding the solution to it. So I, I find that I spend a lot of my time doing that, working with, let's say, oversight bodies on how they should be overseeing programs so that they're not getting in the way, or finding ways to get contracts in place that will support the innovation, or uh, finding ways to hire the right people, whatever, whatever it takes. That's the role of management and leadership, I think. You've had experience as a CIO and IT leader both in federal and private sector. Talk to us about some of the major differences. Uh, of course, Michael started the show with scale as one, but you know, aside from scale and perhaps complexity of the you know the size of stakeholders, what are some of the other uh, differences? 
Uh, I think the second thing you just said is probably the, the big one for me. In government, there are so many stakeholders to anything you do and so many different interests represented. And the result is there's a lot of uh, risk-averse behavior. You have a lot of people who can find problems with anything you do, a lot of people who can veto ideas, uh, and a lot of people that you have to please, and they're, they're all coming from different points of view. And then just when you think you've pleased all your stakeholders and there's another oversight body who's looking at what you're doing, you know, just layer, layer upon layer of it. Uh, of course, in private industry, you have oversight as well or uh, a governance process that substitutes for it. You have a number of stakeholders typically, but there's nothing like the, the scale and the scope of the, the stakeholders for, for a government IT project, I found. Um, you're working in public to a, a much greater degree in the federal government, and uh, I think that's good. That's, that's our responsibility. We have a responsibility to uh, the people of, of the country. We have a responsibility to uh, the other branches of government. We have checks and balances, and everything we do has to be high transparency and has to be uh, acceptable uh, or has to... Um, has to be presentable in a sense, you know. It has to work when you have people looking over your shoulder all the time. Um, and that takes a little bit of getting used to. Also, the government has um, values that are not the same as private industry. And those values are a very important part of how we decide what creates business value. For example, there's a veteran's preference in hiring. Well, the government thinks that veterans deserve special consideration, and, uh, and it's an important thing. We don't generally apply a veteran's preference in the private sector, so I'm sure some company, companies do. In the government, it's required for a very good reason. Similarly, with procurement, it's an important value for the government to be fair when competing contracts. Fairness is a, is a, a very important value under the federal acquisition rules. In private industry, well, you, you want to do a contract, you can invite your favorite couple of companies and ask them how much they'll charge you and then just make a decision without worrying about whether you're being fair to every other company that's out there. So those are, those are probably the biggest factors that affect me day to day. So how do you manage then, uh, how do you balance, what are some of the things that you have to do in order to, uh, on the one hand, uh, respect those the cultural attributes as well as the the regulations that you were just talking about and at the same time run an agile organization and actually get IT projects done that at the end of the day fulfill their mission aren't going to be vastly late or vastly over budget or you know be watered down and trivialized but by the time they're done here's where I get to argue with you I, I'm not happy with that formulation okay um, the way, I, the way I look at it, you're always trying to add business value in everything you do. And in the private sector, business value often means competitive positioning, revenue generation, things like that. There's no reason to think that in the federal government, business value is, is defined the same way. right? We still want to create business value, but the things that create value in the government, obviously competitive positioning is not a big thing. Revenue is not a big thing. 
mission accomplishment is a big thing, like uh, a lot of nonprofits, for example. Uh, but there are other values in the government: fairness in the procurement process, fairness in the hiring, you know, all of all of these other things. And to me, those add value in the government context. And all we're trying to do is generate value by by taking into consideration all these different things. So it's not it's not um, you know uh, create IT systems that do the things IT systems do, and these other values get in the way. They're not in the way. They're Values, you know, just like uh, creating mission value and accomplishing the mission. But at the same time, I mean, we read stories of these, you know, not in, not inside your agency, but in state government. <laughs> of course not. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> well, that goes without saying. Uh, uh, right. But in other agencies and in state governments, um, you know, there's a project here in Massachusetts that's been running for 19 years, mm -hmm. and you know, at some point you have to sort of get right. the thing done and you're doing you're doing all of this stuff with devops and agile so obviously you you have a strong desire to achieve specific outcomes as quickly as you can yes so uh, let me let me reframe that one as well a little bit um, just because um, our projects are trying to create all different sorts of value. That doesn't mean they're doing it in the most effective way or in the most lean way. I, I sometimes talk about lean bureaucracy. Can we create a lean bureaucracy? Is there a contradiction in those ideas? And I, I think this is exactly the point. The bureaucracy has all of these values. You know, the, there are a lot of rules. Complying with the rules is considered important. The other things I talked about are considering are, consi are considered important. But there are lean ways to accomplish all of that, and there are bloated, I guess is the word, bloated ways of accomplishing all of that. Bloated is bad, lean is good, but the goals are still just fine. They're they're the given. They're the goals. So, I think our our challenge really is to figure out how to make government IT lean without necessarily changing what the government values and making sure we're delivering all of those things. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And we've had we've had uh, you know extraordinary federal CIOs. We had Dr. David Bray of FCC, Dr. Lisa Johnson of the White House, Casey Coleman of GSA, yourself. W one common my observation is that you're accessible, you're collaborative, uh, you're open to ideas. Uh, just the fact that you guys are all on Twitter is a sign for me that <laughs> you have you have this inclusive approach uh, where you are welcoming feedback proactively and you're volunteering your time, uh, hoping to teach and be taught. So there's definitely a common thread with all the what Michael and I consider successful CIOs in your space. Um, but you must have lots of challenges. So can you share with us, you know, one or two things that keep you up at night? Like, and there may be just innovation velocity, and you know, a lot of the, lot of the what we call consumerization of IT. People expect to have the, the same powerful tools at work as they have at home, and you have to balance security and accessibility and all of that. But what are some of the challenges that you face that keep you up at night? Mm -hmm. It's uh, none of the things you just said. Mm -hmm. I think people should have the tools they have at home. I think that's a great thing. I think we have 
great ways to remain secure and not have to worry about security. In fact, I think we can improve and improve and keep improving our security posture. So those things don't worry me so much. Um, I think there's, um, I talked a little bit about risk before, and um, a lot of the thinking in the government goes around how to reduce risk. We're, we're very paranoid about risk. And sometimes it leads us to be short-sighted. We, we uh, reduce one risk at the cost of increasing other risks, or we're afraid to take a risk where you pretty much need to if you want to not be overspending. And for example, um, we know that it reduces risk if we can deploy releases to production very, very frequently. Hmm. That actually reduces risk because it means each time you're deploying something, it's a much smaller thing. Uh, there are fewer opportunities to break stuff. You're getting feedback more quickly, so you don't risk going off course and developing something that nobody's going to want to use. Mm. Um, it's, a, it's a huge risk reducer. But uh, getting acceptance to deploy frequently can be really hard in our environment because people are worried about different set of risks. You know. Um, what if uh, what if something goes wrong in the deployment, and uh, how do we know that um, that you're going to continue and finish all the other features, and you know all these all these other things that worry people, that prevent us from doing the things that actually reduce risk. It's a lot of these big trade-offs, right? Um, we we have uh, risk. Let's say we're working with a contractor. We're not happy with their performance, so we should switch to a different contractor, obviously. But uh, the argument will come up, well, we don't know about the new contractor, so there's a big risk there if we switch contractors. Who knows what kind of performance we're going to get? I think the risk is to stick with a contractor that you know isn't performing adequately. That's a very high risk, too. But our, our approach to risk is, is so complicated and uh, paralyzing in a lot of cases. I'll give you another example. We, um, we often have these lists of high-risk programs in the government, and uh, the implication is that those are bad programs, that risk is a bad thing. Uh, so it's, it's viewed as a list of bad programs, high-risk. We've had some of our projects rated as high-risk because we had an aggressive schedule, and there was a high risk that we would not meet that schedule. But is that is that bad? You know, the, there's an easy solution. I could lower the risk of my project by making a more leisurely schedule and saying we're not going to finish for you know four years instead of one year. But is that the behavior we want to motivate? You know, it's, yes, it would be lower risk, but that's not a good thing. Makes sense. So the risk issues are. Uh... So it's, so it's basically a matter of balancing what you're trying to accomplish with what is realistic, but then you have the set of expectations that you're, that you're managing. Uh, so on the subject of oversight, because you work in a, a very compliance-rich environment, so yes. to speak, and, and you've written about this, how, can, how would you recommend that oversight be structured so that it is accomplishes the compliance goals, but at the same time is not an impediment to innovation within IT. Mm -hmm. 
let me again throw out a few different ways of thinking about it, and we'll we'll see which one works for for all of us. Um, so uh, maybe an extreme view I'll give you is that just like I think management should be servant leaders and should be removing impediments, arguably oversight should be the same. The people who actually know how to run a program, who know how to run a project, are the people who are running the project. The oversight body doesn't have as much experience actually running the project, isn't hands-on and doesn't know all the ins and outs of all the decisions that are being made and the trade-offs that are being taken. So just like when I have a team of developers, I want to be a servant leader and let them drive things, you know, say, trust them. Uh, they're closest to the action. They can make the best decisions in most cases. And I want to have a sort of lightweight oversight of them and clear away obstacles. Maybe oversight in the government should have more of a servant leadership posture where the programs themselves know what needs to be done. Oversight is trying to find potential obstacles and clear them away. I like this view not only because it would make my life easier in a lot of cases, but also um, if, you, um, if you think about the, the impact, say, of canceling uh, a project, uh, I think uh, uh, a lot of times oversight bodies think of success for themselves in terms of canceling failing projects. And canceling a failing project to me is the worst thing that can happen because then you have a business need that's not being met. The project that was going to meet it is being canceled. With more of a, a servant leadership attitude, the goal of the oversight body would be to figure out how to make the program succeed, how to, you know, what obstacles need to be removed, what changes need to be made to support the program in achieving its objectives, rather than, well, we're going to show that we're doing our job by canceling the program once it becomes unsuccessful. Sure. So maybe that's, that's sort of an extreme view. Let me give you one that uh, maybe is a lot more palatable, and it has to do with waste. I think everybody can agree that waste is bad. So oversight processes always impose extra work on a program. It might be documentation. It might be that classic source of waste that, that is just wait time. You know, you can't go forward until we have a review and we can't schedule the review right away or the papers that you need approved are sitting on somebody's desk and you have to wait for them to approve them. There are always costs involved in an oversight process. And my question always is, how, um, how can we reduce those costs? How can we make the leanest possible oversight process that still satisfies its goals of oversight? And to me, the, the burden needs to be on the oversight process because there's no other way to control for that. Oversight bodies have immense power to add requirements onto programs. The, the burden should be on the overseers for each burden that they impose on a program to show or at least know why that burden is adding value in the oversight process. So if we have, let's say, a requirement to produce 100 documents for every release, which sometimes we do have, and those documents are long documents, those writing those documents, reviewing them, approving them, that's a huge cost to the program. That's a, a big cost that always flies under the radar. Well, every one of those documents should be investigated to see what value it's adding versus the cost of the document, 
and could we do without it or shorten it or whatever it takes to make the whole process leaner. The um, strange thing in our environment is that I, I don't really see anybody overseeing the oversight bodies to say, <laughs> are you really doing your job in the most efficient way that is causing the least burden to the programs, right? Sure. It's, it's a little strange. Sure. Um, I think uh, oversight should be about applying best practices. And this becomes tricky in our environment because what we think of as best practices often is just what we've done in the government for a long time. And having done it for a long time, it, it gets registered in the big book or whatever is, you know, this is the best practice. If it's not the best practice, then we're imposing bad things on programs, right? It's, it's a very um, risky, <laughs> to use the word risk again, it's very risky to tell a program you should be doing things this way because if you're wrong about the best way to do things, then you're actually costing something and, and increasing the chances of failure and so on. So oversight bodies have a responsibility, I think, to be up on what are the latest best practices, what is known to be the, uh, the best way to manage risk, to reduce time, uh, reduce cost, and all of those things. And I don't think that's particularly perceived as a value in our government environment right now. You've written a number of blogs about these last two topics, uh, canceling successful projects as your extreme view, which actually makes a lot of sense to me, and who's watching the oversight uh, committees. And, I'm going to shift the conversation a bit towards innovation. Last week we had Tim O'Reilly, CEO of O'Reilly Media, and when we talked to him about disruptive innovation, he said, look, just the word disruptive alone is just cheap thinking in my mind. Really, people don't try to be disruptive. The most successful innovators are just simply trying to add value. And so in the spirit of innovation and adding value, what do you do specifically as the, you know, the lead innovator, the CIO, in terms of cultivating a culture where you know, it's okay to ask questions, it's okay to experiment, and it's okay to iteratively uh, improve process over time? I can't really claim to be extraordinarily successful on all of that. It's a, it's a constant struggle. We have a, a culture where people are afraid to experiment and, um, and don't tend to go to the outside to learn new things, uh, often don't do a lot of research. We often can't afford to send people to conferences uh, or to participate in, in forums where they might learn a lot about what's going on right now. So uh, it's a constant struggle for me. How do you encourage people to take those risks and experiment and think creatively? Um, we, uh, going back to Tim O'Reilly's point, I, I agree maybe with a, a couple of small reservations. I, I think it's different people are different, different situations are different. And what a leader has to do is read the situation and figure out what's going to work. And sometimes what's going to work is incremental movement, you know, small changes that add up. Sometimes it's extremes. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, you need to shake people up to get them thinking differently. Whatever is going to work is going to work. And I see it more of as an experimental thing where you try something, you see if it's effective, and then you change how you're doing it. One, one thing that I 
have come to believe, I think, through my experience at USCIS, is when you're trying to move in a strong direction, like agility or DevOps or something, there are a lot of forces that are trying to get you to only go part way, you know, to do it incrementally. And I have found it useful to not give in so easily because <laughs> it confuses people about what the objective is. Um, so we, we had a period when we, we were moving from the waterfall approach on our, our big transformation project to a more agile approach. And people said, well, screen the change. Let's do something that's agile-like first. And to me, it was a disaster. Yeah, it whatever was confusing. That, what, Nobody whatever knew what that they were means. <laughs> whatever whatever that was. You know, yes. We learned it a little, but, but it, was, it, was, uh, it was wimping out. You know, it was, it was you know, like people are confused. What, what should we be doing? Where I find it to be more useful to set that vision. Here's where we're going. Get me there. And then if they say, well, we can only go this far now, okay, I can live with that. We're going to move incrementally. But at no time should anybody be confused about where I'm trying to get us, you know, what that vision is. And they know that I'm going to keep coming back and pushing for that final vision. And they know that if they can come up with creative ways to get us there, that I'm going to support them and, and love it. So I can't, I can't say I've totally solved this problem, but my belief is that it has to be done with this sort of intellectual integrity, you know. Here's where we're going, and that's, that's that. Uh, you know, let's talk about uh, digital government. You actually wrote what you term a manifesto for digital government. So maybe tell us briefly, what, is, what do you mean by digital government? And definitely, what do you mean by a manife manifesto for digital government? So this is um, actually a nice segue there, because this was my attempt to say very clearly where I think we should be heading. And there are a lot of steps to get us there. My digital manifesto eventually, I think, got uh, superseded by the digital services playbook that was created by uh, OMB and GSA and a bunch of other people working together. The intent is very similar. Digital services playbook, here are the plays that you should be making to lead to uh, what they're calling digital government. For me, digital government is really about focusing on the customer, the end user, the, the recipient of government services, and working backwards from a, a user-centric approach to what we're doing. In some cases, it, it is actually digital. You know, it has to do with our online presence for delivering services. In other cases, the online service is just a piece of the value delivery chain. Um, and then the question is, let's say we have adjudicators who are human beings who are making decisions on people's applications, but it's a digital services question how we can optimize the, the results, the customer friendliness, the customer service of the entire process by supplementing what those adjudicators do with digital services, with, with information technology. So I don't think there's a precise definition here, but it has to do with thinking in user-centric terms rather than government-centric terms as we're designing things. Uh, often, if you, if you go to a government website, you'll see it organized by the, different, by the org chart of the government agency, basically. You know, you, 
if you want to find something, you have to know, is it the quality assurance branch or is it the uh, testing and independent verification branch? You know, Somebody coming to the website from the outside, of course, doesn't know those things and shouldn't care. They have a question they want answered. So digital services, to me, are about thinking in terms of what does it look like to that outside person, what's the user-centric view of it, how can we use digital technology to provide better services or, or um, at least customer-oriented services. Um, so uh, I think that's where it's coming from. In terms of the, the little manifesto I put together and the digital services playbook, they're very similar. Actually, a lot of the elements overlap. But the um, some of the implications of trying to move in this direction are that you need to develop services very quickly because you need to be getting user feedback all the time. If you're going to be user-centric, you need to do a little bit of work, put it out there, get feedback, and move on and uh, change things if necessary. I think that leads to an attitude of leanness. You know, In order to reduce your cycle time, reduce the time it takes you to get each incremental feature out to the public, you have to think, where are the sources of waste in your value chain, in your delivery chain? How can you eliminate them? How could you do continuous improvement on your process? In order to, um, in order to do the kind of user-centric design that I'm talking about, you need to work with end users. You need to understand how they think. You need to get experienced user experience specialists who are very good at working with the way users uh, behave and figuring out optimal solutions for them. So all of these things have to come together if what you're shooting for is good digital services. And the little manifesto I put together and the digital services playbook are both intended to flesh out some of those things that have to come together. And how do you uh, adopt an attitude of leanness and adopt essentially what you're saying is an outside-in perspective where you're using the customer as a the customer's view and needs as a reference point for the activities that you undertake how do you do this within the context of a government and a bureaucracy which historically has not adopted that point of view and one could even say I'm sure it's not intentional but sometimes it seems almost actively rejects that point of view mm -hmm. uh, and in some cases that makes sense you know if, if you're um Let's go back to your deportation. You know, if uh, if let's, ICE let's were, not go there, please. But yeah, anyways, let's, I think this is a great topic. <laughs> Keep going. Uh, Paula said so before. So um, you know, uh, if you were to be arrested or detained by immigration and customs enforcement, they might put you in a detention center. A detention center has a lot in common with a hotel, right? It's basically you know they they're giving you beds and uh, and services, meals, whatever. Uh, a hotel would think of customer service in, in that context, right? They might want to survey the people staying at the hotel and find out what appeals to them and those kinds of things. But I, I don't think that's an appropriate model for a detention uh, organization like that, right? They're, they're not about uh, surveying the customers and, and asking what they want. So um, you have to you have to take sort of a broader view of what we mean by customers and what we mean by users in this context. Uh, but uh, but I think there's there's an ultimate 
target of who you're providing the service for in each case. Maybe in ISIS case, and I'm not an expert on, on their situation, but they're, they're serving the, the public of citizens, you know, and, and uh, ensuring the integrity of the immigration system. That's a lot of what we do also. Um, and the customers for that are the ones that you want to uh, tailor your service for. So there's always uh, some customer involved, I think, and some element of working backwards and figuring out what the right value chain is to deliver the service that, that the customer needs or wants. So in terms of working within a bureaucracy, um, I think a good part of the problem, it's not, a, it's not about bureaucracy per se, it's about doing really big programs with a waterfall approach. Because if you're going to do a big IT project and you're going to try to get all the requirements up front before you start it, the only way you can do that is by um, asking people what they want or uh, looking at the business and trying to figure out what's going to work, and it's all speculative to a large extent. You don't really know very well or there's a lot of risk in whether that what you're going to build is really what's going to work for the users or facilitate the, the outcomes that you want. As we move to a more agile, more DevOps, more of a continuous delivery approach, the opportunities for feedback increase dramatically. And, and what we can do is work with a, a user or a customer, show them something, and say, is this what you mean? We've done design sprints with users of some of our software where we uh, talked to them a little bit about what their needs were and then showed them three hand-drawn, you know, sketches of what it might look like and said, what do you think of these? You know, give us feedback on each of these. And then based on that feedback, redid the three sketches and said, how does it look now? Got the feedback based on that. Said, which of these do you think is the best approach of the three? And the users have chosen one. And then we prototyped it and made a, a clickable version on screen that they could use and got their feedback again. And based on that feedback, tweaked the design to something that looked about right and then built the functionality and then put it out for people to use. All of that, that whole process of going back and forth with the users to, to suss out the preliminary designs, we've done that in 48 hours yeah. because we can turn these things around so quickly. That's the way you get to understand user needs better. And bureaucracy is not necessarily an obstacle to that. There are some places where there are challenges. We have, for example, a Paperwork Reduction Act that says that uh, when we want to create a new user interface, essentially a new information collection or whatever, online or on paper, it has to go through an approval process. The approval process requires uh, public notice and a certain amount of comment period and then review by an organization within OMB. And so the, the process of uh, putting out a new form on screen or on paper can take a year, 18 months sometimes. Uh, even making changes to one, uh, in theory, has to go through that process. So I think a lot of us are... Um, or a lot of people in OMB, a lot of other people involved in the digital government initiatives are looking at ways that we can, within that process, get this rapid feedback, or uh, asking if there's a way to change 
the way the process is implemented, not necessarily the laws behind it, to facilitate the kind of back and forth. So the, there's a, an area where I guess you could say the bureaucracy might make it a little bit difficult to do the things I was talking about. Mark, do you uh, work with startups? I used to. So your IT organization, do you do you invite startups to? Um, not particularly. Okay. Um, you know when we when we put out a procurement, when we put out a solicitation, often we're competing it within an existing government vehicle. So DHS has the, its Eagle Two Act. There's a set of contractors who are on that vehicle. When we put out our request for a proposal, it goes to the, the contractors who are on that vehicle. So often that doesn't reach the startup community. There's a lot of overhead in getting yourself on a vehicle like that. Sure. And that's, I, I think that's an unfortunate consequence of the way we do the procurements. Sure. What advice do you have for established vendors that are on your approved list as they try to demonstrate value and their solutions to you? From a CIO perspective, you know what turns you off when you know when you're when someone's pitching a solution to you? Uh, a lot of overhead. So uh, mostly we're uh, we're doing procurements for development services or some other kind of technical services. Let's let's say software development as an example. Uh, what I want the um, the proposal from the contractor to look like is a bunch of developers and testers and, and other people who hands-on are creating value. And the amount of other stuff, management overhead, administrative overhead, other costs, I want that to be almost nothing, you know, absolutely minimal. I want the, to the complete focus to be on actually getting things done. I have the same approach sometimes with my with my staff. We have uh, oversight and governance bodies or things that usually are oversight governance bodies and I keep encouraging them to be hands-on with everything they do. So our architecture, enterprise architecture folks who often would be in a position of saying you have to do it this way, you know, you have to run changes by us so we approve them. Instead I have them creating um, uh, reference architectures, proofs of concept, developing things that can be reused by development teams and things like that. The focus for me should always be on actually creating product, creating value, and anybody else who has to exist should be in a position of servant leadership if possible. Fantastic. Well, this has been a very quick 45 minutes, and we have been talking with Mark Schwartz, who is the CIO of the U.S. Citizen and Immigration Services. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you. I enjoyed Mark, it. You were terrific. Thank you, sir. All right. Thank you. Citizenship and Immigration Services, by the way. <laughs> Did I get it wrong? Sorry about that. <laughs> and he was reading you. I was wondering. You guys were going to fight it over, fight it out over whether this was 113 or 114. Uh, this is this is episode 113. Okay. <laughs> and I'm, really, you know, I was hopeful that my blog, my blog title was my co-host got deported, but we'll get to that later. Anyway. Yeah, I'm going to pull my pass. You know, I have a passport. I pay my taxes. I am totally good.
<laughs> I am just in case anybody has has anybody doubts. So you I, have been. I, I wouldn't want to have to explain to my security folks why I was talking to you if you were a deportable alien. <laughs> and your and yeah and your your security folks uh, did a thorough job of checking us over before they agreed for you to Absolutely. appear on CXO Talk. <laughs> and we would expect nothing less, by the way. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so everybody has everybody did a great job and. You're here, and we're very grateful. Uh, I am Michael Krigsman. My co-host is Vala Offshar. And Vala, next week we're going to be joined by Mark Sunday, who is the Chief Information Officer of Oracle. Excellent. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Mark. Right, Everybody, thanks. thanks for joining us. Mark, thanks so much. And we will see you next time, everybody. <laughs>